So we are in week 19 of our series through First and Second Kings. If you would like my notes, they are printed off somewhere in the back of the room, um, usually on that table at the entrance. You don't have to have the notes. When I'm listening to other people talk, I don't like having notes because it distracts me, but some of you really like it. It helps you, but it's there for you if you want it. So <clears throat> the section we're in this morning is the story of King Jehu, and he is quite a character. Um, and what's exciting about this section, and for, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to see um, kings beginning to actually do the right thing. It's, it's, the, it's the one, like not just the only, but one of the few little bright spots <laughs> in the story of Israel where you have a, a series of kings that sort of start to, to go, wait a minute, maybe we should worship God. Uh, now, it doesn't end that way, and it doesn't stay great, but we can enjoy it for right now, can't we? <laughs> right? We can enjoy this moment. And what we have here with Jehu is the beginning of wrapping up some of Elijah's prophecies and the things that happen in the story of Elijah, if you go back several weeks. And I'm going to remind you of the most important part of that story, which is the story of Naboth's vineyard. Remember Naboth? Um, King Ahab, uh, who has everything, all the power, all the money, all the wealth anyone could have. But he looks next door as he's sitting in his palace and he sees his neighbor, Naboth, who has a vineyard. And he goes, wow, what a nice vineyard. I'd like to have that. And he covets it. The fact that we covet when we have everything is interesting, isn't it? But he does. He said, I want... He's very whiny, so I'll do the whiny voice. I want that. I, I want it. And so he offers Naboth, he said, I'll buy your vineyard from you. He offers him a good price. Naboth says, no thanks. I inherited this land from my fathers. It's very important to me and my family. We're not going to sell it. King, King Ahab goes, and he's so bummed out that he goes in the middle of the day and lays down in his bed and curls up and whines and complains that Naboth won't give me his vineyard. And he's whining so hard that his wife Jezebel hears about it, goes to see him, and he says, he won't give me his vineyard. She says, well, sweetheart, first of all, she immediately hates him in her heart, despises her husband because of his complete wimpiness. <laughs> and she says, don't worry, dear, I'll take care of it for you. She goes and pays off people in Naboth's town to falsely accuse him of being a traitor, has him drug out of town and stoned to death. And then Ahab goes and immediately takes his land for himself. Terrible, terrible crime. Well, Elijah prophesied at that when that happened, and he said God is going to not only kill Jezebel, but he's also going to kill Ahab as judgment, and he's going to wipe out all of his descendants. So no one will profit from this in the end. That happened a long time ago. Elijah has long since gone. Now Elisha is in his place. And we're going to see that prophecy fulfilled through Jehu. Okay? So there are several unfinished tasks to complete that Elijah had been given by God. And Elisha is going to complete them. And we'll see that happen. Number one. He needs, Elisha needs to anoint his successor um, 
or anoint Elisha as his successor, excuse me. Elijah's already done that. Then he, Elijah is supposed to anoint Hazael as king of Syria. Elisha does this for Elijah because Elijah is now gone. And then third and fourth are left undone. Anoint Jehu king of Israel, and Elijah also predicts that Ahab and Jezebel will die, and we'll see that happen here. So it's kind of cool. Elisha is finishing the work of Elijah, his predecessor, in this story. All right. This is about unfinished business that Elisha and Jehu are going to do. So let's start with um, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. I'm not going to read this. I'll just summarize it, and then we'll read part of it. In verses 1 to 13, we see Elisha recruit one of his junior prophets called the sons of the prophets, which is an interesting category of prophet. Probably just means there's a group of prophets who have been trained and mentored by Elisha, maybe even Elijah, and they are kind of like the guys that you call to go do stuff. Go prophesy to this person, go prophesy to that person. So Elisha recruits one of these junior prophets to go to Jehu, who is not yet king, and anoint him as the new king of Israel privately, because this is dangerous business. This is basically a prophetic coup, okay? Elisha gives this other prophet a prophecy for Jehu to go along with this anointing. He says, go prophesy to him this, anoint him with oil, make him the new king, as I told you. The prophet does this, but he also prophesies, in addition to what Elisha told him, he prophesies that Jehu will assassinate Jezebel and the household of Ahab. He goes a step further in his anointing. Then the prophet sneaks away. Jehu goes out to tell everyone what happened, all of his friends, not everyone, just his friends. And this results in him eventually becoming the king of Israel, sort of. It takes a while because he's got to get rid of the current king and all the people that could become king after him. Which brings us to verse 16. Jehu finds out that Joram, the current king, has been injured in battle with Syria and is healing in Jezreel. So he's hurt, he's laid up, this is the perfect opportunity for Jehu to, to go in and execute him. Ahaziah, who's not, he's been brief, mentioned briefly, you probably don't remember that name. It's important for you to know before we read this story that Ahaziah is not a descendant of Ahab. He is a descendant of David. He is only connected to Ahab and Joram because his daughter married into their family. But he's not on the list, okay? He's not on the list God gave Elijah of people that need to be judged and taken out, okay? He's just there because he's loosely connected. And we'll see what happens to him along with Joram here in this story, all right? So 2 Kings 9, 16 to 28 says, then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, is it peace? Like, are you coming to kill me, or are you coming to bless me? Because everybody knows this prophecy from Elijah is sitting out there waiting unfulfilled. So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, 
what do you have to do with peace? He just basically doesn't answer the question. Turn around and ride behind me. He recruits him to join his crew. And the watchman reported saying the messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. <laughs> he's joined the other side. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. This gives you a picture into what Jehu is like. He's one intense dude. And he is riding full speed at Joram, wherever he is, hiding out and healing up. And every time they send a messenger out to ask, hey, uh, you seem aggressive. Is everything okay? You coming? Uh, why, why are you driving, riding like this? What's the deal? He just recruits the guy into his group. Verse 21, Joram said, make ready. It's like, I'm nervous. This doesn't seem, this seems unsafe. I don't know what's going to happen. Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Ah, you sense the prophetic irony, don't you? I love that it's still called the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. From God's perspective, Ahab and his family do not legitimately own that property. They stole it. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be, so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? <laughs> I don't know if I ever want to meet Jehu in person, but it's fun to read about him. Verse 23, Then Joram reigned about and fled, as you do, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. This was Elijah's prophecy. Verse 26, as surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ilbim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. So Jehu has done what God commanded, but he has also gone too far in killing Ahaziah. So Ahaziah was not on the list. God had told him clearly, take out Ahab's descendants, and starting with Joram and working your way down, and he finds Ahaziah there at the same time who also runs, and he kills him too. That's murder. The first one was justice. Ahaziah was murder. This will not be the last time that Jehu does this. It gets worse. 
Jehu is a morally mixed bag. I mean, I like him on the one hand, but he's also not somebody you really want in your life. It's unclear what his motivation was to kill Ahazi. It may have been political or simply that he was impulsive and enjoyed the violence. That seems to be the implication about him. He eventually kills 42 people he was not authorized to kill. Some not by his own hand, but he ordered their death. So verse 30 to 35, we have Jehu executing Jezebel. And I, and you'll forgive me if I'm a little excited about this. Um, <laughs> she was awful. Okay, She had not only done the thing to Naboth, but she had brought Baal worship, which was basically a sex cult, into Israel and had so instituted it that they had built temples in order to replace worship of Yahweh, and she had continued to promote this awful, pagan, demonic worship in Israel in competition with worship of Yahweh, to the point where at this point in the story, God is basically not worshipped at all. If you look at this area of the world from an archaeological standpoint, it, it's hard to tell that Yahweh even existed for them. What you find is idols upon idols upon idols to false gods. And most of this was because of Jezebel. So verse 30 to 35, it says, When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? He's calling out into her house. Two or three eunuchs looked at, out at him. <laughs> Heads pop out. You talking to us? Go away or I'll taunt you a second time. A little Monty Python for you. Verse 33, Jehu says, Throw her down how much authority he has he's an intimidating guy so they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her then he went in and ate and drank and he said see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter but when they went to bury her they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands this is a, this is what elijah had prophesied that the dogs would eat her on the street. Everybody okay? It's justice. It's absolutely justice for, straight from God. Jezebel has manipulated her way into controlling Israel through her weak husband, King Ahab. Then she led the nation into Baal worship had sworn to kill Elijah, had murdered her neighbor Naboth and his children so that her pouty husband could have his vineyard. And she has run the country ever since. God's had enough. So I think one of the things we need to see here before we move on in the story, because it gets weird, <laughs> we should pause here for a minute and recognize that God is a just God. 
if you look at this story from the perspective of just, just look at it from the perspective of Naboth's wife for a minute. The most powerful man in the world, in your world, has come next door, killed your husband and your children, and taken the property you inherited from your forefathers. Your only claim to stability in life is this land. And he has taken it just because he was jealous and wanted it. Not because he needs it. Not because it can help anyone. He just took it. And you've been sitting there with this knowledge year after year after year. Because when it happened, the greatest prophet Israel has ever seen, Elijah, prophesied that justice would come. Just wait. Perfect justice is going to come. And day after day, year after year has gone by. Elijah is now gone, and Elisha is around, and he hasn't mentioned anything about me and what happened to me. And I'm just sitting here, and i got to look at Jezebel hanging out in the palace all day long, dressing herself up with her eunuchs and doing whatever it is she does. Where's the justice? But God is a God of justice. This means that whatever's been done to you, one thing we all have in common, I guarantee, is every single one of us at some point or another has been done wrong. Betrayed, let down, stabbed in the back, lied about, stolen from, jilted in some way, deceived, tricked, abandoned, something. And it's easy to feel like God doesn't see, God doesn't know, and if he does, he doesn't care, and if he does, he's not going to do anything about it. I am left, and the, the, the moral scales of justice are tilted the wrong way. And God's just, this is never going to be made right. But the truth is, God is a God of justice. He sees, he knows, and every single injustice that's been done in the world will be made right by him. And it will be made perfectly right. Not just the injustices done to you, but the injustices you've done to other people. The times when you've let other people down, stabbed them in the back, betrayed them, lied to them, deceived them, cheated them. That injustice will be made right too. Maybe the timing is a little off for you. <laughs> Maybe it takes longer than you like it to take. Maybe you're disappointed in mankind's attempts to bring justice. But God's justice is perfect every time. Every moral debt owed to you will be paid. This is the basis of how we forgive one another, by the way. Knowing that this is true, that justice belongs to God, means that you can then be free to forgive. Um, I want to look at Romans 12. This is not in my notes. Sorry, Scott. Romans 12, 19 to 20. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. (laughs) What does that mean? That means since Jesus came and died, taking on every sin onto himself when he knew no sin himself, did not deserve that justice, that wrath on his head, he took it for us. Since that moment... We are now free. We don't get to take vengeance for ourselves. And what you're doing is, he says, you're making room for God's vengeance, for God's justice. When you forgive, you make room. You're not just letting it go like it doesn't matter. You're not saying, oh, it's okay if this is never judged by God. It's okay if this is never made right. What you're actually doing is just saying, I'm taking my hands off because it's not mine to repay, but I'll tell you whose it is to repay. It's God's. And in my eternal future, I will look back on all of my life and the life of everyone I know, and I'll say every single thing is perfectly made right by him. And when I take my hands off, I'm not letting go of justice. I'm just letting go of my right to bring justice and say, God, it's up to you. I'll wait on you because your justice is really perfect. It exactly, talk about punishment fitting the crime. It always fits perfectly. So Jehu next destroys the house of Ahab and then goes too far again. See, right now, Jehu's a hero with a little black spot on his record. He's about to double down and make it worse, and he goes from hero to villain pretty fast. There are 70 children of Ahab still alive that God has commanded to be killed in order to totally end the lineage of Ahab because of his wickedness and the wickedness of his family. 2 Kings chapter 10, the first 11 verses, tells us of Jehu sending letters to the elders of the cities where these sons live, and he threatens them into literally bringing them their heads, making a pile of their heads in the city of Jezreel, Naboth's hometown. But then this happens. Verses 12 to 14, Then he set out and went to Samaria on the way, when he was at Beth-Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, the guy he murdered. And he said, who are you? And they answered, we are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth-Eked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. What? He just had 42 people murdered. You start to go, who is this guy? What's wrong with him? Then verse 18 to 27 tells us how Jehu killed all the prophets of Baal at once. It's another story I like of Jehu. (laughs) We leave aside the 42 murders, 43 murders for a second. So he goes to these prophets of Baal and pretends to be a Baal worshiper. 
She says, hey guys, you thought Ahab was a great Baal worshiper. I'm the best. All my friends tell me I'm the best Baal worshiper of anyone else. And they believe him. He says, tell you what, guys, we should do. We should have like a big, like Baal worship service. A big, big, just everybody get together. He's like, hey, you know, you should dress up, you know, like get your best Baal worshiping clothes, get your outfits on, like whatever that looked like. Just go all out, guys. This is not just a normal Sunday service. This is the biggest and the best Baal worship service of ever. And so they all get excited and they put on their outfits and they come down to the Baal temple he says, now go in there and make your sacrifices. This is so great. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. And they all go inside the temple and start doing their sacrifices to Baal. Super excited. And Jehu's standing outside and he tells his 80 soldiers, go in and kill every last one of them. And they go in and they kill all the worship prophets of Baal and then they bring their worshiping altar stone out and they destroy it out front. And Jehu turns the Baal temple into a public latrine. This is now where we go to use the bathroom. It's a wonderful bathroom facility we're going to use from here on out. I mean, the man has a sense of irony, doesn't he? So what are we supposed to make out of this guy, Jehu? Like he's, he's heroic sometimes, and then he's a mass murderer the next minute. Like what are we, what's the final analysis of Jehu? Well, they tell us right here in verse 28 to 31. This is what the author of Kings says, verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Woohoo! Now if that was the whole story, we'd be excited, especially if you've been following along through First and Second Kings, what a problem this was. And what an offense to God it was. But, verse 29, But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In other words, he kept all the other idol worship going. He just got rid of Baal. And he just got rid of his competition for becoming king. And he used God's command as a convenient excuse to wipe everyone out so that there was no competition for him to become king. And then he didn't even get rid of the idol worship in Israel, he left it because he had gotten what he wanted. His heart was divided between doing what God says and following his own selfish desires. Jehu was a zealous instrument of God's judgment but did not serve God for God's sake. He did not worship and obey God in his heart. In his heart, Jehu was for Jehu. That's an easy mistake to make, isn't it? It's nice when your will happens to line up with God's will. And you go, oh, this is convenient. This is also what I wanted. I wanted a great job and a great family and a great life. And it seems like God's just led me into all this great stuff. 
But when God's will and your will diverge, that's when you're really tested. And at every point, Jehu failed that test. This divided heart caused him to go too far in killing those that would possibly stand in his way, but not go far enough in returning Israel to worshiping Yahweh alone. So he went too far and he didn't go far enough at the same time. Hosea 1.4 condemns Israel, the prophet Hosea, and the house of Jehu specifically, for, quote, the blood of Jezreel. And this becomes, according to Hosea, one of the main reasons Israel is eventually sent into exile. It's because of Jehu's murder in the name of God. God isn't interested in your zeal nearly as much as he's interested in your heart. In fact, I would say the more zealous a person is, the less I trust them. The bigger their talk is, the more people tell me as a pastor, you need to take a stand. The less I want to listen to them. Because the church has gotten really good at being zealous in public against the world and not very good at applying zeal to things like worship and authentic pursuit of God and good character. And so we're happy to rant like Jehu in the public and take people out. Have you noticed all the Christian videos now being shared around? And it says, so-and-so obliterates atheist in a debate. And you're like, wow, it's like really violent language we're using now on our video titles. Destroys. It's like, what? What are we doing? What does that say about us that we're attracted to that? Right? Christian destroys atheists. Is that the goal? <laughs> to destroy people? I, I hope it's not. That's the spirit of Jehu, who's happy to take up arms against his oppressor, but knows nothing of God and what it means to worship him. He's not jealous for God. He's not pursuing God. He's not, he has no heart for God. He just has a heart for himself. And God's designs are just convenient ways for him to win instead of a way to obey God. Have you noticed that humans are very bad at justice? We're not good at it. It's a God-given desire in us to want justice. You see an injustice. I mean, it's why there's so many movies out there and stories about someone and a horrible injustice. We try to come up with a story where it's the worst imaginable injustice you can think of done to someone by someone powerful, and then some hero comes in and makes it right. Right? Some lone hero swoops in. It's a story as old as time. It touches something in us because we all want justice, but we're terrible at it. It's always unsatisfying, isn't it? But Jesus is the one who gives perfect justice. And he didn't do it with a sword. What he did is he received all the wrath on himself. He said, every punishment due to you because of your rebellion against God, I'll take on myself. And from God's perspective, that creates perfect justice. That's how it can be good news for the victims and the gospel is good news for the perpetrators. We're uncomfortable with that sometimes, <laughs> depending how awful the perpetrator is. 
But that's the truth of the gospel. That's what's amazing about what Jesus did for us. Jesus receives all the injustice so that he can give us justice. So I want to pray for us. Number one, that if if you recognize parts of Jehu's heart inside of you, have you ever felt murderous feelings before? You know, maybe, I mean, don't raise your hand. I'm not saying, have you ever murdered? I'm saying, have you ever felt murderous feelings, all right? Well, you're just kind of, somebody makes you mad, and it's usually something dumb, and you know it's ridiculous, but something really murderous comes up out of your heart, and you say, oh, and it's what's really bad is when you feel justified for religious reasons at the murder in your heart. And that's what Jehu did. And if you get nothing else out of this, don't be like Jehu. (laughs) Zeal's not enough. God wants your heart. So I want to lead us in repentance for that. If you recognize that kind of unrighteous, unholy rage in you, that God would remove that from your heart and replace it with not just saying justice doesn't matter, It absolutely does, but it's in his hand, not in yours. So that you're then able to say, okay, God God will go this far to make things right in the world. And if he'll go that far for poor Naboth, who was nothing in that world, was just a dude worth a vineyard, a farmer. And God saw that and worked history, bent history towards justice for Naboth and his family. What would God do for me? That means I'm free to forgive. So I want to pray that, one, that you would come to repentance over what you see in your own heart, but also that you would be able to forgive those who, you know, you can forgive this, you can forgive that, but then they did this. And I can't forgive that. You can. If you look at a God who is a God of perfect justice and you trust him to take care of it, then you're free. So I'd like to lead us through those three things in prayer. Why don't we stand up? I'm very aware that when we talk about forgiveness, um, many of you have experienced pretty deep injustice. And it's not, it's not an easy thing to even think about when this topic comes up. And so I want you to just, not, you don't need to trust me. You need to trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit to walk you through that right now. Okay? So let's pray. Lord, first of all, we, we thank you that you are a God who sees and knows and cares about the injustices done to us and done by us. Nothing's lost on you. Nothing, you're, not, you're not looking somewhere else or paying attention to something else. You see all of it and you know all of it. And you are doing something about it and you have done something about it in Jesus. 
God, I pray right now that you would remove from us the heart of Jehu who favors zealous, selfish vengeance over trusting you. Lord, would you help us to lay down the sword in our heart? Holy Spirit, I ask you to minister to each one of us the ability and the strength and the courage to trust you enough to forgive. To open our hands and drop the right to vengeance for ourselves and instead entrust you with it. That we would make room for your justice in your timing, in your way. And we trust that it will be perfect. God, for those who are just riddled with guilt over their own betrayals, God, those of us who have done things that we are deeply ashamed of, feeling as though we have to somehow live in a way that makes up for it knowing at the same time that's impossible. The debt of injustice is too great and there's blood on our hands. God, I pray for those that they would see that you are, you have poured out all of your wrath for our sin onto the head of Jesus. That we are made righteous while at the same time there is perfect justice in the world because of him. God, I pray that those of us who are struggling with this, that we would actually be able to see in our mind's eye right now you taking the, the guilt that is on our shoulder and placing it on to the back of Jesus. God, I pray that you would destroy shame in everyone here. That there will be nothing that we feel like we have to hide inside. No guilt, no shame, because it's all on Jesus. God, I ask you for freedom, freedom from forgiveness and freedom from guilt this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.